Welcome to the Settle Cane Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Smith, broadcasting from the Aorta of America, beautiful festival city, Oshkosh, Wisconsin, where we pump out reason and pierce through the propaganda. Here we go. It's 2023. Once again, that old bald cheater, time, as the author Ben Johnson referred to it, has stolen another year from us. This rightly inspires some reflection and hopefully introspection. We set goals that we will likely abandon in several weeks, unfortunately. We wonder how another year has passed us by, and we may even believe that we catch faint glimpses of a black-robed figure armed with a sickle out of the corners of our eyes. This is episode 43 of the Subtle Cane Podcast, The Tortoise and the Hare. The new year can be a celebration of possibilities, or it can be another link in Dickensian chains. There are myriad contributing factors to how one perceives it. Among these may be age, culture, religion, and just the general predisposition of personality. Our reactions to the circumstances we encounter in life are dependent on so many elements. The complex compounds that are each and every unique personality number in the billions. Eight billion, seven million, six hundred and some thousand unique personalities as of the recording of this episode, according to the tabulators at the unimaginatively named World Ometers website. As you cast your gaze upon the horizon, does your heart swell with the hope of new opportunities? Do you feel discouraged by the past? Has the merciless, grinding machine of mainstream media worn you down to the point of anxiety? Maybe you feel punch-drunk or even apathetic. Statistically speaking, anxiety and depression have either made an initial appearance in individuals or possibly increased in severity, at least here in the Western world. One of the most likely contributors to a dire outlook about the coming year is the constant focus of news being on all the things that are either actually going wrong or the predictions of manipulative prognosticators that intentionally leave you feeling on the precipice of some emergency or another. As I have alluded to in my last podcast episode, The Reason, there will always be some calamity or another, real or imagined, waiting just around the corner. There will always be those who are happy to take advantage of the fear that comes from uncertainty in order to further personal or institutional goals. Recently, it appears to me as though the focus of the trauma-based entertainment has shifted slightly. I like metaphors as a, as a literary tool. We had our friends over for supper last night, and I was the one cooking. I had several different dishes that I had to prepare, and I started boiling water for the potatoes and then moved on to the preparation of the steaks. I also had to juggle the asparagus and the lobster tails. Quite a feast. We don't usually eat like that, by the way, uh, but we wanted it to be special and for our friends that were coming over. Making sure everything was done around the same time is definitely a chore. Uh, let's pretend we're speaking about a feast here, or our metaphor, of globalization and technocracy. The pot of plague and pestilence has been shifted to the back burner to simmer for a spell. But don't worry, it'll just take a little twist of the knob and that pot can be brought back to a full boil in no time. I'd say that 
war and nuclear annihilation is on a front burner because it needs a little more stirring right now. It's actually taking up an awful lot of our resources. On our main burner, we have the delectable climate catastrophe and energy crisis. And in the oven, waiting, is our fateful food shortages. All of these dishes go together quite well and complement each other masterfully. A technocratic feast is being carefully and lovingly cooked by our elitist chefs. Now, before I torture the analogy beyond any semblance of reason, I will offer questions for consideration. What if the actual threat uh, of all these things happening is so irrationally disproportionate to reality as to make the whole situation obscene? Is that possible? What do I mean by that? Could it be that the risk from climate-related disasters has actually been drastically decreased over time and not increased? The philosopher Alex Epstein makes just such a case quite profoundly in his book Fossil Future. He also has a website that covers the topic quite deftly, energytalkingpoints.com. What if more people have been lifted out of poverty than ever before in human history? That is actually the case according to ourworldindata.org. Apparently, statisticians are just incapable of creative names for their websites. Now, I don't want to minimize the fact that energy policies are being put into place all over the world, which will actually plunge the world into poverty and cause massive environmental destruction. That is the case. Affordable energy is the linchpin that allows for the most alleviation of human suffering in the world. So-called renewable energy is unreliable prohibitively expensive and relies on strip mining and child labor to even limp along at an unimpressive 3% of the energy produced in the world. Now, I'll let you venture down that particular rabbit hole if you feel so inclined. I do suggest that you look into it a little further, if nothing else, just to have a little counterweight to all the climate catastrophe that we're hearing. It's another example of how the experts have sold a bill of goods that not only does not accomplish what it's set out to do, but actually makes things worse. Another booster, anyone? Just for the sake of argument, though, what if, what if things are not as bad as they're made out to be? Would that, would that bring you relief? Would that bring relief to a society so inundated by bad news? Well, one would hope so. I'm not completely convinced. I think a part of us wants the news to be bad. I think a part of us needs the news to be bad. Sort of an addiction to the trauma at this point. There is an almost palpable dread woven throughout the virtual world. To my eyes, there are armies of intransigent ideologues of all flavors coexisting online. The various echo chambers all bound together like some sort of unstable radioactive isotope. It's become much more easy to live in a bubble of comfortable agreement. We don't have to associate much with those with whom we disagree. We don't have to associate with many people at all, for that matter, apart from the superficial necessities of daily life, like going to work or to the store. We limit conversations to safe topics like pets or sports we follow. Discussion of anything more substantive is shied away from at the very first indication of potential disagreement. Professor Matthias Desmet, the famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, Belgian psychologist who wrote the book the psychology of totalitarianism, has recently been criticized for his theory of mass formation, or at least for the book that he wrote about it. 
This isn't the initial criticism that mass formation doesn't exist. This is coming from the other side of the argument, the side that believes it does exist, but that he doesn't do enough to blame the ones perpetrating the propaganda to perpetuate the effect. I can understand and appreciate the sentiment. I really can. But it is, in the end, only that sentiment. I believe that people should be aligned with Professor Desmet and applaud the work that he's done to expose fatal flaws in society that allow opportunists and ideologues to prey upon the public at large. Instead, we have a subset of people who would rather attack him for not pointing the finger directly enough at those they want exposed for their misdeeds. This, to me, is somewhat myopic and and unhelpful at best. Professor Desmet is specifically addressing aspects of the individual life that led to a predisposition for mass formation in society. His work is not meant as an expose of the ruling class or their particular ambitions. I deeply value, I deeply value the the work brave people do to expose the machinations of the self-proclaimed elite. I've personally spoken to some of them and, and I find their work to be invaluable, invaluable to the cause of freedom. The situation brings to mind the old adage, though, to me. To a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I am more inclined to focus personally on personal responsibility and and less on the schemes of others. But I do recognize the importance of investigative journalism. It's critical. It's a crucial element of free society. And I laud the people who are dedicated to bringing what happens in the shadows out into the light. My predisposition to focus on on the individual and on personal responsibility is mainly one of pragmatism. Do I want the so-called global leaders and influencers to receive some sort of amnesty for the crimes they regularly commit against humanity? Certainly not. But what mechanism will we use to prosecute those in power? Do we reasonably believe that they will be held to account for their actions? Is that a reasonable expectation? Perhaps we can vote our way to freedom? I'm willing to talk about it. I honestly wish it was that easy. What would it look like if we were given the ability to hold those in power accountable? Would it be institutional collapse? Would it involve gallows or guillotines even? Do we imagine shaved heads and naked bodies marching down the main streets like Nazi collaborators in France after World War II? Now, as cathartic as that imagery is to me, I wonder... Where would it end? Where would the line between us and them be drawn? Would we not simply transform from the people to the mob? After the top of the food chain, would we expand our search to include our neighbors and our employers, our friends and our family? Would we become the very thing that we claim to detest? Again, I will say that I value the hard work of those who expose the lies and schemes of the various Machiavellian cohorts among us. It is right, and it is just to do so. I spend plenty of time here on my podcast discussing these issues because resistance to tyranny requires speaking up against it. I understand that we need to pump out reason and pierce through that propaganda. I think my track record speaks to my convictions in this area. One must not confuse a call for personal responsibility with a desire to extend immunity to a class of criminal elites. One can advocate for personal responsibility and condemn the actions of the criminal. The two are not mutually exclusive. Now, this next part may garner some less than enthusiastic responses. 
The term virtue signaling can be quite triggering for some people. It is, in fact, a less than tactful description of people's often genuine intentions. Nonetheless, it is technically accurate. So many well-intentioned people of all stripes are doing what they feel is in their power to do by posting things online. Now, before I go any further, I will readily acknowledge that that is precisely what I'm doing right now. I understand the pejorative manner in which the term is used, and as inglorious as it sounds and as hapless as it may seem, this is another form of virtue signaling. I am signaling, through written and spoken word, not only what I believe to be true, but the things that I believe to be virtuous. There it is, all out in the open. That Aaron Smith guy was online virtue signaling. The thing is, it is necessary and beneficial to speak out about what we believe. It is. We're going to get things wrong. And being sincere isn't always enough. I get that. I get that. I would like to make a distinction here. One between words and actions. You can't know what my personal life looks like. I can sit behind this microphone and I can tell you with a clean conscience that my words and my deeds are as aligned as my flawed and imperfect personality allows for. I make a conscious effort to be the man I know I should be, but all I can say about that is, there but by the grace of God go I, to paraphrase the martyr John Bradford. Virtue signaling that earns our ire is is more about the stolen valor we see amongst those who substitute words for actions. Those who believe posting the right meme or adding such and such to their profile picture somehow represents true change in the world as they go about their lives indifferent to the actual work they could be doing to lift others out of suffering. That's a very important distinction. Here we take a short break for some updates. First, the Subtle Cane Podcast is a value-for-value podcast. That means you have the opportunity to return value in the form of time, talent, or treasure if you feel that I've provided value to you. Yes, I did crib that line from the No Agenda podcast, but it's concise, and I like it, and so I used it. There are links in the show notes for how to contribute financially. You can always email me at subtlecane at protonmail.com. That is subtlecane at protonmail.com. I have started releasing Substack articles, as promised, although the timing is still somewhat sporadic thus far. I will get better at that. Please see the link provided for how to subscribe to the, as of now, free newsletter. I will also post a transcript of this show there, and I have, with some real trepidation, with some real trepidation, started a Twitter account. You can follow me. Uh, handle is at SubtleCane. I know, I know. I'm not saying it's ideal. I have to get the word out there, though. I have to. We'll see what happens. If I feel myself being sucked into a vortex of misery, I might have to reconsider. But here we go. Let's hope I can manage to stay on the right side of that particularly sharp two-edged sword. And last but certainly not least, my neighbors are relatively resettled in a new home and are making the transition with remarkable grace. Thank you to anyone who donated to their GiveSendGo.org campaign or donated cash locally. Now, their struggle's far from over, so I have the link in the show notes for anyone interested in making a difference. I think that's that for now. Let's jump back into the content. What does it take? What does it take, then, to 
realize real change if it isn't just the virtue signaling of posting memes. My wife and I are as different as any two people can be in many ways. I often jokingly refer to us as the tortoise and the hare. I did so this morning. In case you're a little fuzzy on the context, I don't know if you know this story or not, the tortoise and the hare is a children's story about a race held between these two animals. Now the hare is quick and can run like the wind in rapid bursts of speed that the poor tortoise can only dream about. But the hare also becomes easily distracted and is overconfident. Conversely, the tortoise is as constant as gravity and has no illusion about its slow pace. The overconfident hare sprints ahead and arrogantly decides to take a nap along the way. The self-aware tortoise steadily plots along and never loses faith or becomes discouraged, despite the odds being against her. In the end, the hare wakes up too late and the intransigent tortoise crosses the line first. Now it should be obvious to the listener that my wife is the tortoise and I am the hare. She's taught me so much over the years and has modeled what true dedication and persistence, faith, and determination are capable of. She has not only overcome the odds, she has excelled in everything she does. My path is more one of intermittent vigor and apathy. Thanks to her example, though, I've been able to achieve some modicum of moderation. I suppose it's fair to say that I did have the same thing modeled for me by my dad. A more disciplined man I have never met. Of course, I'm as stubborn as I am impulsive, so it took my wife watering and growing the seeds my father had already planted. Okay, Aaron. Well, thanks for the unsolicited autobiographical narration. What's the friggin' point? Good question. Glad you asked. If you're concerned about what you're seeing in the world, you are probably paying attention, though things may not be as bad as they seem. So what should be done about any of it? Another good question. And the answer isn't likely to be post a meme, even if they are a great way to capture sentiment and use humor to fend off despair. There are a host of things each of us can do, and because of the unique personalities we all have, they will vary greatly. The most meaningful and impactful answers, or answer, all likely have to do with personal investments in the people around you. We want to see drastic and rapid changes to the things we recognize as needing to be changed, don't we? We want the world to be a better place. I, I think most of us do. The world is rather huge, though. Sure, we can rage against the machine and we can burn brightly. We've seen how impactful a can of gasoline and a match can be over the last few years, haven't we? That's not how we win the race, though. That's not the kind of change we need. Fear begets fear and violence begets violence. That's the way of the hare, arrogant and impulsive. What we need isn't an army of hares sprinting around in bursts and then burning out like a flash in the pan. What we need is an army of tortoises, persistent and diligent and faithful. What we need is a steady and calm voice that speaks peace and invests their time and energy into their communities and the lives of those around them. That's how we enact the change we want to see. What have I done to make the world a better place today? is the question we need to be asking ourselves. And make no mistake, I'm asking myself the same question right now. I hope that this new year inspires a sense of hope and renewal in you. It doesn't pay to focus on our past failures. We will always fall short of the ideal version of ourselves. But we can't let that 
allow us to indulge in complacency. After all, complacency is the most fertile soil for evil to grow in. Happy New Year. May we all be the tortoises we need to be in 2023. For all you listening, you are valued, you are loved, and you are worthy. God bless, and good night. Lack of fear as a world I love